Lucky you. 36 best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Sandy. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) Okay, Billy Regan, we are just thrilled to have a special guest. What timing and everything. We have Craig, none other than Craig Harmon, the best of all the four Harmon, wouldn't you say, Billy Regan? I don't know. We might want to get Billy back on here at some point. So, yeah, I, for today, well, Craig's can, the best. I, I can guarantee you I'm not going down that road because I, I don't want my brothers to pick on me after the fact. <laughs> so that's not happening with me. Yeah. Did, did, did any of them, We I have two brothers, Billy's got a few. Did any of them pick on you growing up? You know, uh, we all picked on each other. It was equal opportunity picking on. Usually when we paired up, Dick and I always were against Butch and Billy. So it was the oldest and the youngest. And since Butch was a phenomenal athlete, you know, all metropolitan county, New York halfback. Uh, if we played football in the backyard, the Butch would just hand the ball to Billy and then completely deck Dick and I as we tried to catch him. <laughs> and that was in every freaking sport. <laughs> I was the oldest of uh, four brothers, um, and I turned out to be the smallest, but there's certain advantage to age that that kept me on top of the pile, at least till we became adults. Yeah, and then, then it all changed, although Butch was always that way. There's a story, we're playing at Oak Hill, and Dick and I are playing against Butch and Billy, and Butch gave up on the first hall, so we get to the eighth hall at Oak Hill, and a camera crew came out because the four Harmons were playing, so all of a sudden, Butch was trying. He hasn't tried for seven consecutive holes. He had a 20-footer, and Dick is in his line, 20 feet on the other side of the hole. And Butch says, Dick, you mind moving? And so Dick gave him a look and moved about one foot to the right. And, you know, that's BS. Dick, better move, or I'm going to go over there. I'll help you move, you know, stuff like that. And Billy and I said, geez, we're getting a fight here right on the eighth hole at Oak Hill. And Butch hasn't tried on a shot. Now there's a camera crew out here. and But we had fun in those days knowing each other's personalities. You know, Butch and Billy were the time bomb, Tom, Tom bombs and uh, Dick and I were the calm people in the family. <laughs> Speaking to a camera operator, Billy Regan, that was gold, you guys getting into it on the absolutely when they rolled out with the cameras, right, Billy? Absolutely. absolutely. Keep the they cameras were on. They you were there. To, you have to tell Craig the really quick story about the shot you saw hit into was that. The man, it was at the Augusta, fourth hole. The tough par three, fourth hole, Craig. Billy's standing behind the green, and next to him is a is a hand. Well, how, how, does he, how does he think it's the fifth, the sixth hole, the third hole? My God, Augusta nationally doesn't even know what the fourth hole is. At once, get me down so, there. I need to learn more. So uh, we do we do a bunch of topics here. He's expert in horse racing and classic movies. I have the photographic memory of holes and stuff like that. Not so great about. Uh, Oak Hill. We'll get to that later. But he's standing behind the fourth hole at Augusta, that tough par three. And yeah. right next to it, right shot. next to an ENG cameraman and Tiger Woods, who's 16 or 17, nails one on the green and starts walking towards the green, twirling his club like a baton, just sort of like whistling a happy tune. He looked like the most relaxed guy in the world. And this cameraman takes the shot and then puts the camera down. And I, I looked at him like, "What are you doing?" This is what you want. This guy, this is gold walking at you right here. Tiger. I'll never forget it. And, and he absolutely. could have had it on video, but oh, that would be absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. So they don't know golf. They just are getting hired to take a picture. 
Yep. That's yep. where you should have come in. <laughs> exactly. How many major winners, I know Jeff Sluman, but how many major winners have you worked with in your life? Well, well, Jeff Sluman, I can take semi-credit for him since I hit all the shots when he won the major. Uh, <laughs> no, but over the years, you've, you've given lessons to people, one-offs, two-offs and things uh, that would have won majors. Uh, they, a lot of them always wanted to have a lesson from a Harmon because of my dad and eventually, uh, eventually because of, what's his name? Uh Oh yeah, my brother Butch. Uh, <laughs> and so then they would pick your brain to see what was going on. So they'd be one off from time to time. That were always fun. It's always fun dealing with incredible talent. Uh, it's just a majestic thing as a teacher to uh, watch some guy who can do anything you ask them to do and, and do it perfectly. So, you know, Butch can't teach anybody without talent. He can only teach people, teach people with talent where the rest of us can teach everybody. Well, so the, about that. So you're saying I got a chance? Yeah, big time. <laughs> Me too. I just discovered Hogan's tip, the tucked elbow, and I'm uh, 50 years into this game. If somebody could have told me that. Maybe your father could have told me that when I was a youngster at Wingfoot, but he didn't. Uh, that was well, my loss. It's just a question of which elbow you were tucking. <laughs> <laughs> How much information do you guys share as teachers? And brothers, you know, over the years, we've shared a, an awful uh, good amount of, of information, things we learned from dad and down the line, things we learned from each other. And uh, what has really come back, uh, Billy and Bob, is it really came back to dad taught us almost unequivocally. So the, the four of us never really invented anything new, although we thought we did maybe at the time. Uh, but it really comes back to dad's teachings, his fundamentals. Uh, have stood the test of time with all of us, really. It's amazing, actually. It is. It's an incredible family and incredible tradition. I, and I saw somewhere, I read uh, an interview where you talked about hiring a, a, a pro staff and that your father taught you first to hire ladies and gentlemen, and then second to teach them how to be uh, the pro, the club pros. Yeah, that was when I went to Oak Hill. I was 25 years old and I had to hire four assistants and some shop staff. I said, Dad, what do I look for here? He says, you hire ladies and gentlemen first, and you turn them into golf pros or shop staff members. And he said that on the premise that these people represent you, and you want them to be a lady or a gentleman. So way back in 1975, when I got the job at Oak Hill, that was my guide with anybody I interviewed of any kind. And if I checked on background, that's what I would check on. Because they actually they represent you. They're They're part of your brand. And uh, I think that bodes well for any industry, any business, really. Sure. Well, I, I retired from Oak Hill 2013 oh, after 42 years. So <laughs> I just couldn't last 50 years. Can you believe that billion, Bob? I came close. <clears throat> Talk about that, though. You know, we, we experienced a few pros, Tom Neoporti, your dad before him. It's a special character trait to last a few years at a golf club or a country club, let alone 42. How does it work? Well, number one, you get paid pretty good. Uh, number two, in my case, we had about eight majors. So every few years, you had a major to look forward to. So it made it a little bit easier. Uh, but the most important part of the equation is Oak Hill is a working class town with a world class golf facility. And everybody was so appreciative to be there. So the members, it was an honor for them to walk on the premises. And it was a greater honor for me to be their golf pro. So there was just this love affair with people who love golf and they worked their hearts out to do it. Uh, it was unique that they, they 
they could afford it. So it wasn't like a, a real wealthy club, although it looks that way. It's really a working class club. And I just enjoyed that. And just regular people playing a, a good spot. Now we did have a, when my brother Billy worked for me many, many, many years ago, we had an outing where there was no dress code. And so oh, people were wearing short shorts and white socks up to their knees and t-shirts. <laughs> and, and he's looking out over the putting green from this, our top steps of the pro shop and he had his jaw sticking out. Billy said, it's the Toledo Mud Hens playing in Yankee Stadium today. I'll never forget that one <laughs> as long as I live. Everybody looked like a, a bum per se as by our, our so-called standards. But I'll never forget that that line. He said, Oh my God, what's that? That's never happened at Wingfoot, you know. <laughs> he's a little wow. he's a little tit shore in his comments. He's got some beauties. Oh, yes, he does. Always has and always will. You're never going to top him. <laughs> so you grew up, you know, beyond the black cows and the Monday golf at Wingfoot. But you you were around, as Billy said, you you learned to be around famous people. You know, I'm sure Bing Crosby, you know, came in and out of your life and Bob Hope and all these other guys. How did you how did you deal with that? And how have you dealt with that at, at Oak Hill and, and the rest of your life? Well, you know, growing up, we were always around so-called celebrities, as you would call them. But uh, during the 59 Open, Ben Hogan had two cookouts at our house. And uh, Bob Hope, when I worked at Lakeside Golf Club, Hollywood was a member there. And he knew my dad from Thunderbird Country Clubs. He'd come and say hi. So it became kind of normal. They weren't really celebrities back in, to us. They were just these are people in our house or having dinner. And uh, so as a young person, you never thought of it. I've got this star in my house type thing. Uh, they were... You know, being around Ben Hogan when he's relaxing is a lot different than when he's playing golf. Because I did play golf with him when I was 18 years old. I don't. I think he said two words to me the whole round. Uh, and I and remember they one nice shot. Well, they. I'm not even sure he said anything. And this is a casual round with my dad and his buddy Art Butler. And I remember on the 15th hole he kind of skied a tee shot, and I was walking in behind him, and I'll clean up what he said, but to himself now. I just was closing. God, I hate that freaking shot, you know, but he didn't say freaking. <laughs> and I never heard my dad swear. And I didn't think Ben Hogan swore. Oh my God, Mr. Hogan just said the freaking word. You know, I said, what's going on here? Uh, but he's really said to himself, but I was right there. So, but they were just, they were not, they were abnormal people in the sense they were great, but we were around them when they were comfortable, we'll say. Uh, you know, Bob Hope just walking through the shop was, was just something. Yeah. Back in our youth. So we actually grew up and I guess it was kind of normal. You know what I mean? They, yeah. We didn't consider them the, the big stars that everybody else. We weren't starstruck, we'll say. So back in the day, my brother Dick and I, when we lived in Palm Springs, of course, called Tamaris, we caddied there. And we had this uh, Mr. Rockford guy who was a big producer in Hollywood. And we've had Milton Berle, the comedian, and Kirk Douglas, the great actor. Uh, and so I had uh, Kirk Douglas and Mr. Uh, Rockford and my brother Dick had Milton Burrow and uh, Rockford's little Rockford Jr. kid uh, who was a real weirdo uh, and after the round I remember this I'm going back a long time now in the 60s uh, Kirk Douglas gave me $50 which was oh. a gigantic fee back then and I remember the the younger Rockford producer came up to her what do we give these kids five dollars he and Kirk Douglas goes Hey, you give him 50, you know, with that voice of Kirk Douglas. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Just, it was right out of a movie. Hey, 
You give them 50. <laughs> well, you know, Hank Malpa, we, we heard from Hank and he started at Wingfoot in the early 60s. That's what a loop cost, five bucks in the early 60s That's right. around the time. And he played for $5 Nassau. So in relative terms, that was a lot of money because the caddy fee today at Wingfoot's 120. And nobody, <laughs> plays, except for Billy, nobody plays for $100 Nassau at Wingfoot. They play at $5, which is a lot less than the caddy fee. Yeah, I, right now when we play at the Meadows, we play for the caddy fee. Absolutely. That means we concentrate a little bit more than a $5 Nassau. I can think, I'll tell you that. We yeah. start playing for the caddy fee. Dougie, Dougie Wines, right? Wow, Dougie, my best friend, yes. Yeah, I, I, I knew him. I've known him since 1970, I think. Well, how'd you meet him in 1970? Boston College. That's right. And speaking of Doug, he said uh, that I should ask you, he says he uh, Butch is now training or uh, uh, teaching or coaching Ricky Fowler, but you, you've got your hands on that as well? You know, uh, Ricky went back to Butch uh, this past September uh, because Butch wasn't on tour. And, you know, a lot, all the pros need someone on tour. Butch is retired. And so he got this other guy who's a very good teacher. Uh, and he gave him three years worth. And he went from, you know, like 10th in the world to 180th. So then he finally went back to Butch. And basically, I'm Butch's eyes here at the medalist where Ricky is a member. Uh, and just keep him on the same page, so to speak. But we're I'm doing Butch's bidding with uh, Ricky. Let me put it that way. Uh, it seems to be working because, you know, Ricky's been much more visible in contention the last. Yeah, you know, he's had uh, all top 20s really the entire year uh, since he's been working with Butch. And, uh, you know, they were uh, a, a great duo back in the day, as all Butch's guys were. And then when Butch retired, he wasn't going on tour. Now, he's four years now not being on tour. And they're, they're so used to having people on tour with them uh, versus uh, let me fly to Las Vegas and right. know, do something. And uh, it's just interesting. So there's a Webb Simpson a couple of years ago won the Varden Trophy and Butch had been working with him. Uh, and Webb Simpson went out on, went to see Butch in Vegas five times a year because Butch wasn't on tour. So his agent gave me a call and said, geez, Webb would like to get some Butch some wine. We know Butch is, really likes fine wine. So I called Butch up. I said, Butch, one of your players, I didn't tell him who, would like to get you some wine. You've been successful with him. He says, Craig, I've got 500 bottles of wine in my wine cellar. I don't need any wine. And then uh, I called the agent back. I said, you know, Butch doesn't need any wine. <laughs> and the agent said, well, I know what Butch likes. He likes cash. And I said, well, you know, I don't know how much they've made together, but I'm going to say 15 to $20 million. And so I'm not sure that Webb could stroke him a check that would impress Butch, you know, <laughs> but what Butch likes are replicas of trophies of things. So the guys who've won major championships with Butch uh, basically gave him a replica of the trophy. And the interesting with Butch, he's had seven different guys win major championships under his tutelage. That's, that's pretty interesting. And so anyway, the agent had to make up a replica of the Varden trophy, which Webb Simpson won that year which is the, the Varden grip and beautiful trophy. And so Butch sent me a replica picture of the Varden trophy. Jesus, one of my players, Webster, just sent me a replica of the Varden trophy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then he sent me a picture of his wine cellar was the next picture. We did have about 400 bottles of wine in his wine cellar. <laughs> and I, I sent him a picture of mine that's on my kitchen counter that holds six bottles. <laughs> <laughs> but he loves the little replicas of things, which he's earned, uh, Butch has, and uh that's a, a very cool gift really from uh, webb simpson but really appreciate it 
again, what I said earlier, you were probably surprised that Butch has had seven different people have won major championships. Uh, yeah. And, and Billy would say Butch has won nine in his mind, but he really hasn't, doesn't play and he can't finish a tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but there isn't any place like it that I'm aware of. Uh, Oak Hill has a tremendous heritage of not too far off of uh, Wingfoot's, but it's just, it's just not the same. They didn't have Craig Wood as a pro and Claude Harmon as pro. You know, Craig Woods, Masters, U.S. Open champion, and dad won the Masters, and on and on and on. It's just a, an incredible legacy. When you're a member of Wingfoot, you're really walking on hallowed ground uh, in, the, in the most beautiful way. It's just fantastic. I look at That's, Oak Hill, though. You know, when you stop and think about it, it becomes even more incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the, the, if you're a member there, you're very proud. You have to work hard to get there. Uh, but everywhere you walk around the club, there's a history that's Fantastic, really. Love it. Oak Hill has that port too, because every great golfer has played Oak Hill because of the spacing of the the three US Opens. Now you're gonna have the fourth PGA, the two amateurs, the Ryder Cup, the senior. All those people have walked those 355 acres too. So it's pretty hallowed, I think. It's a Mecca. In my opinion, it's a Mecca of mega championships in brisk weather. This month. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be brisk here next week. I think yeah. the high is about 62, and you you could get a tee time and you're playing in the 60s, or you could get a tee time and you're playing at 48 degrees. Are you going to go back up there for the for the? I, I definitely I'll be there Thursday through Sunday for the tournament. I can't wait. Very excited. I'm actually excited to go there as a member, and I don't have any work to do. Yeah. The only times I've been there. You're running the merchandise tent for the club or doing this and that. And so it's going to be very refreshing just to go there. Well, you don't see the tournament. I know in the uh, the Ryder Cup, I made sure I saw the opening drive. Uh, and then I watched the last match come in on the last day because I was running the merchandise for the club. And most of them have been the same. You're doing that for the club and you're really you're not out on the course watching anything and on the range watching things. Uh, however, you're so proud to be there. It's uh it's really a cool, cool experience. I remember in 2013, our, our pro shop was the Players' Lounge, and my office was just a few steps above it, so they didn't take that one away from me. And I had in my office uh, my dad's uh, master's jacket from 1948, you know, decked out with a tie and stuff. And Adam Scott came in, who was a good friend of the family, and I said, Adam, come on, I want to show you this. So he saw the master's jacket that he had just won uh, that year. And he touched it. I said, where's your master's jacket? He said, it's right on this sofa. As I walk into my house, I touch it every time I go, go into my own home. He just touches it. He has it laid right over his sofa. Because uh, it means so much. That jacket will say it's such a unique thing. So I'm honored to have the 48 one. I, I stole it from my dad. I went to visit him down in Mamarnock, New York, and went up in our attic that we grew up in. I see, Jesus, there's a master's jacket up there. The size 42 regular, by the way. His last one was 50 stout. Uh, that's why he wasn't the portly veteran when he won the Masters. Uh, but actually, I had said, Dad, I'm going to take this up to Oak Hill and you know, show it on Jerry Man. No, 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 I want that jacket. You can't take it. Well, it's been up there for 20 years. He's never even seen it. So I, I snuck it out of the house anyway. And so for two weeks, I always showed it in my shop, the Masters jacket. I had the driver use when he won. So it's a very cool display. Stuff like that. Regular persimmon driver. Yes. Which like, looked like a big uh, head was as big as our thumb fingernail. They were so tiny back then. Yeah. It's incredible. It changes. How did you become friends with Adam Scott, your family? 
Well, Butch had uh, t- was taught teaching him at the time. That's right. And so I've been around Adam for many, many years, uh, had dinner with him and stuff. And he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Just to you know, begin to tell you what a nice guy Adam Scott is. But he, it was just this, I know you won the Masters. Let me just show you what my dad's riddle jacket. You know, we, so he was touching it and looking at it. And I said, where do you have yours? It's right on the sofa as I walk into my house. I, I get to touch it every day. Just kind of cool. He's uh, it, This goal goes back to Wingfoot. So one of our newer members, maybe the last 10 years, is a Japanese gentleman. And he owns the clothing company called Uniqlo. Oh, Friends with Adam Scott because of that. And for he sure. the same thing you said. He couldn't be a nicer guy. He, oh, kill and so forth. We want to dive into that. But one thought <clears> occurred <throat> to me. You talked about how hard it is to win, I think, a little bit. I don't know who S-Y No is, N-O-H, but he is 11 under at the Byron Elson in the first round at the TPC Craig Ranch. You talk about how hard it is. Guys, 11 under after one round. What's going on out there? Well, obviously, uh, you have 11 under par, but, you know, the par fives are par fours. I think at that course, they have two drivable par fours. And so par is is kind of relative in that stage. Uh, However, you still have to shoot 11 under par. Everybody else has the same chance to do it. Uh, these guys are the best players in the world, and I venture to say there's very little rough uh, type stuff. So the usually fairways are 30, 35 yards wide, and then there's very little rough. Major championships, I know Oak Hill, uh, they're 25 to 26 year, yards wide, and then I'll have four inches of rough. Uh, and so usually you get your little keister puckering off the tee more than seven iron into the green so if you have to put it in the fairway for 72 holes or to just hit a seven iron on a green it's a lot tougher to do that when you're penalized for missing the fairway so rough is a huge deterrent uh, to low score narrow fairways uh, low rough huge deterrent and other than that i don't know what you can do to stop these great players i just they're just so good all everyone on tour is, is fantastic and you play with rory in the media day at the oak hill well, it wasn't recently, 2013. Oh, I'm and it was sorry. He, that's when he went with, uh, I believe it was Nike, and he had to use this Nike red driver and their new ball, and he, he, he just couldn't get it in the air. It had such a low spin rate, and he you know missed the cut in the first one overseas and didn't play well. And this goes back to January, February of that year. So on the, the day the play with the, when I played with them on PGA press day, I remember distinctly on our fifth hole, I said, well, how's this deal coming with your driver? He said, I think we have it figured out. I have a shaft with a low flex point uh, that'll help get the ball in the air. And then he went to his drive. I went to my drive and my mind said, let me, I I think we have this figured out. That was back in January, February, March, April, May, you know, five or six months later, he thinks he has it figured out. Uh, but he was obligated to play that club. And so that kind of messed him up until he signed a contract. Uh, but he was obligated to play that club and that ball and just was not a good club and ball for him. But it's, it's a little small community town of Pittsburgh, yes. What's the rough like? Because we the rough in May at Wingfoot is worse than June. You lose a dozen balls in a round of golf in May for p- coming up to an open. Is it like that at Oak Hill? Uh, right now, I chatted with the superintendent uh, last week. The rough is four inches long, and they just now have a growing season. Uh, he's already put fertilizer in it uh and so if they get any they're having warm weather right now so for a couple of days uh, it'll grow i would say 
by the time the tournament starts around, it'll be between four and four and a half inches, five inches. Uh, Carrie Haig, who runs the event, will ask them to cut it down, which is kind of normal. Uh, and so I don't know how much they'll shave it down. We had an evil superintendent. I say evil in a beautiful way, Dick Bader, back in 1980. And he had the rough at about four, four and a half inches. And they told him, we got to cut this down like on Monday or Tuesday. And he was very prideful of the rough. And so he basically went in his workshop that night, his old crew. They, you know, those rough mowers are gigantic machines. They go up and down the roughs on either side. And he turned all the mowers backwards. And so the PGA on Tuesday showed him mowing all the rough on all 18 holes, but it was fluffing it up. It didn't <laughs> cut backwards. He fluffed <laughs> right. it up. That was his place. And I'm not, I didn't get this course in shape <laughs> to tell you me either. Tell you, I'm going to cut the rough right now. So I'll never forget that as long as I live. So uh, Jack Nichols was the only one who broke par that, that year. It's oh. just funny how he said, I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> they, they can't stop the tournament. And they can't shoot him. <laughs> you know, was, it's funny. We talk about that in the, in the open that Mickelson should have won on 18 or whatever in 2006. Billy and I go back and John Birdman, you probably know him, the caddy at Wayne, yeah. legendary Bird. John Jandrea. Yeah. Mickelson was just before that fairway bunker on five West. I say just before he's about 155 in a semi ugly lie. And he took out a hybrid. So let's maybe say it was a three or four hybrid, whatever that hybrid was he carried. He was going to try to cut under it, right? And feather something over those bunkers onto five West's third shot. Yeah. Hit it 10 feet. That rough being three inches gave him the thought that he might be able to pull the shot. Right, Billy? We talk about yeah. you know, Yeah, the rough for that high grabs the hosel and just shuts the club down and you just don't get it in the air. But if it was yeah. six inches, he wouldn't have even considered the shot. No, no. He probably shouldn't have considered it that time. He, but Exactly. Uh, yeah. Part of his genius is he goes for stuff and doesn't care and accepts the consequential, which is yeah. a wonderful way to be, by the way. Yeah, you he can't just, change horses in midstream. And nor would you want to change him because he's great. Right. He's one of the best players on the live tour. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> I hate to divert, but have you watched an event or been to an event or followed anything? On the live tour? Yes. No, not at all. You know, it, it doesn't interest me from the standpoint, A, shotgun starts. Uh, you know, when they when I hear a report on it, they report on the team aspect they don't re they really don't report on the, the individual so not having watched it and they have obviously some fantastic players but of the uh 48 players only about 12 of them are really fantastic players mm -hmm. but yeah. the 12 are really good they are good but if they win nobody seems you know who cares well they well they care because they win a lot of money <laughs> so, yeah. so it, it's a money grab but uh right now the american public hasn't grasped it per se because they're out of the limelight and the golf is very good on the pga tour right now anyway it's fantastic yeah it's as good as it's been in a while i think i think so it's unbelievably good and how good is rom and scheffler and now you got homa <laughs> and all these new guys how about eric cole yes you've been playing out with of nowhere cole? you probably play with him up here right no i've never played with him i know who he is no, but, I, but he, I was reminding reminding him of the the smart ass that I was. I said, "What's your best round?" I didn't know he was a pro. Oh. Sixty one, because Neil Christie just introduced him to me. 
And I met play. his mother, Laura Ball, at Wingfoot in 72 open. She was a star then. But, but what about I the- bet, I just, bet you did meet his mother. He's a beautiful young. woman. I was 14 then. She was great. And she she was one of the few people who could hit it long, like Joanne Carner, too. Yeah. 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 So what about these guys? Or Brandon Matthews, he's another guy that we've met over here. What about these guys, their chances to get into this game where guys are shooting 11 under? Well, they don't shoot 11 under all the time. So you can only control what you shoot. You can't control what anybody else will shoot. So uh, back in the day when some guy would come to my dad, I got my son and uh, he wants to play the tour. What does he need to do? Well, it is anything that four straight 68s won't cure. And I, th I think that has stood the test of time. You shoot four under every round. You know, I mean, you're 16 under for the tournament. That seems to pay off every week. Yeah, you're uh, going to make so a that's, living. That's what these guys do. And uh, I don't know how you can – the only defense on a course is wind and firm greens, as far as I'm concerned, with, with some rough. But without that, it'd be like, okay, we'll have – everything will be very soft because of the weather conditions. But that also means that the rough is going to be very gluey you know, it's going to be wet and the ball will tend to go down the bottom. And that makes it quite difficult. And golf being golf, sometimes you, you miss everything by half an inch. Some days they go in. And I, I'm sure that variable is much less for these guys than it is for guys like me. But, you know, there's a there's a span of, you know, you shoot 81, you shoot 89. Some days well, it's there, some days it's not. <laughs> that's right sometimes you get the break and sometimes you do not that's for sure but in this case you know they're going to be playing a, a great old school golf course mm. and i guarantee you every player will love the course because it's not like there's out of bounds and water everywhere and like the 18th hole with well hollow that just they just played is such a hard hole that that water off the tee is right there and the bunkers and the trees on the right are you know looked like the world's tightest golf hole uh, but it, what made it tight is how penal it was if you missed it. And Oak Hill has very few holes like that. So it's always been called, you know, one of the fairest, hardest golf courses that they ever play. And, and they kind of like that. They like the fair part. Are the greens bullish or undulating? I, I don't recall from my... Well, we had a redo about three or four years ago, Andrew Green. And he basically put them back to almost original designs from Donald Ross. So over the years, because of the way they mow things, they become circles. And back in the day, they were more rectangular looking. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now you're going to see more of that. And the bunkering is superb. Uh, you know, having been there 42 years as a head probe, uh, it was unique for me to see it when they cut down a lot of trees a few years ago. Because uh, every hole was tree-lined. So now you tee off on number one, you can see number two. You know what I mean? Where before every hole had its own little amphitheater. So that part to me is more startling. But then you play the hole and the hole is just stunning. You know, so it was it was on farmland many, many years ago and there were no trees. Right. And then this Dr. John R. Williams, an arborist, uh, uh, went all over the world and planted elms and oaks and firs and over the years, 50, 60 years or so. All of a sudden, you have these gigantic trees on every side of the fairway, and I, I was more used to that. And that's what I know Oak Hill. And so when I when I played it the last couple of years, those trees weren't there. It was kind of startling. However, the holes themselves were equally spectacular. Nothing that part doesn't change. I would only had sort of a similar uh, thing early on. Uh, uh, 
a local nursery was going out of business and the and the board bought up all the trees and stuck them out there so there were pine trees and many of them have now been taken down over the last 15 yeah they infringe upon the, the the fairways and the greens you can't grow grass under a tree that's just the bottom line uh so if you have trees they need to be away from things if you want to have proper grass and proper grass on the greens and things so i, I get it you um, have a tree in oak hill that one tree like the one on one west on the left that or the one on 17 west to the right that people just didn't want to cut down well you always have that that you're, you're so used to uh you know, we have our Hill of Fame, which is the picture on the phone that you just sent me, which is surrounded by trees everywhere. And on the left side, our left side of the green right now, they cut those down because that they the green couldn't get any sun. So those big trees are no longer there. Wow. The ones on the right are there because the sun sets on that side. Uh, you know, the, the old line is, we'll hug them on the way down. You know, you, you'd rather have a green that's perfect and a beautiful tree and you can't grow grass on the green. That's just the bottom line. Well, you know, the pine trees go all the way to the ground. Uh, you have an oak tree, you can, you know, the limbs are much higher once they become mature. So you can branch. Right. The pine trees go all the way to the yep. ground, and you just can't do anything. So those are good ones to get rid of. So you, your best round at Wingfoot, remember what was your best go around at Wingfoot East or West or NET? I don't care. So basically, I think my best rounds there were 67 on both courses back in the day. I, was a, I think I was a plus three handicap, whatever that means. Uh, means you were plus, really good well but i played with my dad when I was a plus three about 18 years old we played the west course and back tees and i shot 70 and he shot 63 and so i saw him make nine birdies birdie half the holes and i just remember saying to him as we walked off the 18th green this is a true story guys i said you know dad i work hard on my game i'm a plus three handicap i just shot two under par on one of the hardest courses in the world I just cannot see me shooting 63, making nine birdies like you did. He said, I, I said, I don't get it. And he said, and he had his arm around me as we walked to the pro said, Craig, it's very simple. He says, some people have it and some people don't. <laughs> <laughs> and he, basically, he had, he said, and then he segued into, you know, you can't make a racehorse to have a mule, but in your case, we'll make you the world's fastest mule. Now, I don't know if I liked it at the time, but I think it was accurate. <laughs> Because there was no way I'm ever going to make. I'll take it, yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't always that good, and and I we heard from your brother about uh, your namesake, Craig Wood, said to your father, "What kind of golfer do you want to be?" And he said, "Well, I want to be like you." And he said, "With that swing of yours, you're not getting out of Newark Shell or <laughs> Westchester County." So he had a hard he had a hard uh, conversation at that age in his life, and he was determined, right? Yeah, well, uh, Craig Wood changed his swing. Dad had a big swinging hook back then. He says, you'll never be any good hitting that shot. And uh, He taught him how to hit a fade and took him a while to do it. But uh, that was the switch that made him a, a great cop. Now he could hit it both ways, but he didn't have this vicious hook that was like a rattlesnake biting him in the ass every time it impacted. <laughs> he knew it was going to happen when he walked up to the tee that he couldn't control this hook. You know, the, the old saying is you can talk to a fade, but a hook won't listen. So yeah. Dad had one of those non-listening Hooks and Craig Wood is the one who helped him become the, the great golfer that he became. Yeah, and probably why he played the Augusta well too, because a lot of the trouble at Augusta's left, right? You know, good players play well everywhere. Uh, it's just an interesting dynamic. When you're good, you're good. And, you know, dad to this day has the course record at Seminole 60, uh, the course record at both courses, Wingfoot 61s, course record at Quaker Ridge, which as you guys know is a great course, 61. 
still standing. Course record at Fisher's Island, 63, I think. And so he obviously could play. Awesome. So, And when he was a part-time tournament player, he could play. So the year he won the Masters, 1948, he lost the semifinals of PGA on the 37th hole. Uh, he would have played Ben Hogan in the finals as a, not a touring pro. And obviously at Wingfoot in 1959, he finished third, lost by two shots. He should have won the tournament as the host pro. Uh, so, but he could play. And he just happened to want to be a – he had a tough job. He had Wingfoot and Seminole. <laughs> what a <Yeah>. tough gig. <laughs> take, us, take us through, though, that – your dad shooting 60, 61, 61, 63, all those low numbers. What goes on in, in a head of a professional – whether you're Ricky Fowler or you're, you know, John Rahm or you're Claude Harmon, when you're doing that, what goes on is, or is it just nothing and you just go to the next shot? What, what is it? I would say there's absolutely nothing going on ahead that they're just good golfers. And you know, you've always, you've played good rounds, you've hit good shots. And the difference is they know they're going to do it. And we hope we're going to do it. You know what I mean? Uh, so we tell off, we hope we're going to have a good round. Well, they know they're going to have a good round. They know they're going to hit good shots and it just, it's just who they are. Uh, so anytime you have a great touring pro, pro come play your course, he's going to shoot 66. That's what they do on a casual round. That's just, yeah. that's just, that's just the gig. Yeah. Billy Regan saw Brian Harmon play Siwanoi as a youngster shot 66. I saw Payne Stewart. Shoot 66 down in Miami Beach. I was lucky to play with them on a Monday qualifier. There was there was a casual round and there was no stress. Nothing. That's just what they do. It's like, uh, that's just what they do. Uh, you, you just can't imagine it, but it's, it's nothing. And so you're always surprised, like when Rory McIlroy misses a cut in the Masters. And he was playing super going into that, playing every practice round he played super. So those are the more surprising things. Uh, is when they don't shoot in the 60s, uh, which is hard to do, but not when you're the best players in the world. That's what you, you get used to doing it, and that's just what you do. So what do you think, uh, if you had four or five players and you know, you're know you going to go to DraftKings and make a stupid bet head-to-head on four or five guys in the PGA at Oak Hill, who would you think is uh, going to come down the uh, Sunday stretch there? Well, you definitely go with the people playing well now. Uh so Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm, you know, those guys have uh, seemingly don't have ebbs and flow to their games. They don't seem to have anything going wrong. Uh, but you just go by what's happening right now. Uh, that tends to usually a touring pro makes his living two or three weeks a year. Then he goes, doesn't play well. Then another two or three weeks he plays well. So anybody who's been playing well for two weeks, you kind of look at him and you figure he's going to get a third week. They can, they can go for three weeks in a row. John Roms and Sky Sheffer, they can go four or five weeks in a row. You know what I mean? So you look at someone who's been hot for a couple of weeks and you would bet on them with the outsider that they're going to have another good week. Yeah. Because they do. There are are there there's no live players in this, or are there? Sure. Oh, sure. I think the yeah. same amount they had at the Masters. Okay. Uh 16, I think there are. Uh, all wonderful golfers. But but there's pressure on them, but they're happy to be there. You know, they're back with their group, so to right. speak. They're not an outcast. And and it's one off well, from the Masters, so they've already, you know, broken Well, they've ice. already done it, and, and a lot of the live players played very well at the Masters, by the way. Yep. Because yep. they're good. and now, But they're back in their normal element. The other one's not there. They can say what they want. They're getting paid millions of dollars to play in an abnormal element. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. They're they're just great players. There's nothing. Uh, and so they're they're missed, but they're not missed that much. No. And what's happened? Well, that's is, sports. You know, I like anything that calls attention to the game of golf, and uh, uh, I just think it's fun. You know, they have their pip money that you know they keep uh, telling you know, Roy McIlroy lost three million dollars in the because he didn't play in that last, so he didn't lose anything. He just didn't earn it. That's right. You know what I mean? He didn't have it, and he had to give it back. Right. But because he didn't play in an elevated event, uh, he wasn't going to share in whatever that those funds were. Uh, but I like the fact you, you take care of yourself first, and you worry about all that stuff second. And he had to be devastated when he missed the cut at the Masters. So he doesn't have to play if he doesn't want to. He's, he's one of the great guys in golf. Like Joe LaCava is now caddying, uh, not for Tiger anymore. He moved on, right? Interesting. Well, but that's because Tiger can't play for about another year. And Joe likes to be out there and do his thing. Uh, you, know, you know, Tiger with his, you know, his foot is just terrible. Yeah. Can see, he, can, he can play. He can't walk. That's right. I, I, I see him on the range at the Meadows, and he, he just stripes it. If they made you the Ryder Cup captain today, could you get all of your players right out of Jupiter for a team of uh, <laughs> Ryder Cup players? Well, I would say it would be a pretty good team because there are a lot of great players in this area, that's for sure. So, yeah, the courses, the weather, and the ocean, and the water. Uh, you know, Scottsdale has a lot of pros are in, in Scottsdale, but doesn't have an ocean, but it does have the weather. Uh, and then you have the convenience of the airport getting places, but this is a fantastic place to be if you're a touring pro well medalist seems to attract a bunch of them yeah well you have the medalist the bears club uh jordan's place uh that collects a lot of them so you have about three or four courses that collect a lot of them uh they're just fun it's just fun seeing them out there working hard on their games and very dedicated and uh so if you're a member at the club just kind of fun watching them because they're freaking grinding it out. It's, it's not a casual thing when they're during the season. It's really yeah, they something. Play, they play in the member members at the medalist, right? Isn't there a pro yeah, flight? Yeah, yeah, they do. They play in the member guest, member yeah. member. Absolutely. That's That's got to be so much so much fun for the members. Billy, Billy you're going to get 22 shots off of Ricky next week. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I got a buddy down there, uh, EC, said he came in the locker room one day after a great round with his partner and said to Ricky Fowler, Ricky, we might have you. We shot the, a gross 66 today. And Ricky said, uh, sorry, I shot 64 on my own ball. <laughs> Something like that. So yeah, it's just, to, just to have that kind of, you know, He's situation. Something. So Ricky's a, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. He's, in, he's not a kid any longer. Uh, but he is really so. I was on the range with him last September, and I'd see him out there and chat with him. He's just a fun guy. Uh, and he's sending his video. I see him take video swings, send his video to someone. He's taking videos. And I said, Ricky, who are you sending the video to? He said, send to your brother Butch. Well, that, that was before he announced that he was going back to Butch. And so then uh, we take a picture, a selfie together. Ricky sent it back to Butch. Butch goes, who's that old guy next to you, Ricky? You know, <laughs> so they started working in September. Uh, and his first tournament was in September out in Napa. And he finished sixth. And then two weeks later, he finished second. Uh, and then the rest is history. So he's basically top 20 every time he plays. He went from 
180th to 50th in the world. And he really hasn't hit a stride yet. When you hear stories about how great he is with the fans, you know, Arnold Palmer-like as far as the way he treats the fans, especially the kids that admire him. Yeah, I'll give you a story. Yeah, yeah. The, at Oak Hill, he came in for the 2013 PGA the, the Monday before. Uh, and when he finished his round, he was on our upper putting green, uh, putting with about eight of my junior golfers for over an hour. <laughs> and just putting around, having fun. If they made aces, he signed a ball and all that kind of stuff. So then I see him the next week, Tuesday, in the players' lounge. He says, Craig, Craig, I have something here for your kids. So he goes to the locker room, has a big box of his hats, the Puma hats that he put in my office. He signed every one of them, 48 hats. Wow. So that, and I think of the, just to do that is kind yeah. of special. Yeah. How can you not root for a guy like that? Yeah, and I, I guarantee you that he enjoyed putting with those kids as much as anything. Oh, yeah. He's a little kid at heart. <laughs> yeah, but just to have the hats there and all that kind of stuff, uh, real special guy. Just really, really enjoyed being around him. He's something. The networks have wanted to do this for years, where they mic these guys up and try to have them go through a hole or so. I don't know about that, but I think it's good to know more about these guys and what they're thinking. Not everybody. You know, it's good for it. us. I, I'm not sure it's good for them uh, yeah. to break their stride to do something. So when you're concentrating on something, it's hard. So these guys play three weeks in a row, not because of the physicality of the event, it's just the incredible concentration. Uh, and they're exhausted after three weeks mentally. So now if you have to walk down a fairway and chat with someone and be on point, you know, say all the correct things and think about what to do. But then you have to hit a two iron over water with a left to right wind, you know. Uh, it's kind of nice for us. I think it's very hard on them. It may, it may pay dividends, uh, you know, with the fans. You get more fans that way. You get to know them a little better. That would be the incredible dividend. Uh, but, you know, most of these guys are independent contractors. I'm not sure they care too much about that. You know, they when they hit a uh, – when they peel a two-iron around a corner about 10 feet, they're doing that for them. Yeah. I'm not going to think true. about anybody else. Yeah. Uh, but off the course, you, you learn more about them off the course and – uh, you know, I just gave you a beautiful off the course Ricky Fowler example. Now that same week, that same day, Tiger Woods came in with his caddy Stevie, and he had a cart, and he had two policemen with him. He played 18 holes at Oak Hill. Nobody could play the same hole. Uh, Phil Mickelson came in. He played by himself. Everybody they lose him for autographs, and he said, "Well, put your stuff in the shop, and I'll sign it, and you can do it after." Then. You know, then he he did. He signed everything afterwards. No interaction with anybody. Right. And my other example, Ricky Fowler ended his day putting on the upper putting green with eight of my juniors. Quite a dichotomy. Yep. It, but uh, everybody has their own way of working. We know Tiger had his way. You know, the blinders were on. And I've been around Tiger, you know, at the medalist and uh, PJ Championship. Where I've been around him a lot, he's just a real cool guy. I, I've always enjoyed Tiger, but when he's working, he's working. But there's going to be a whole cadre of the best players in the world who've never seen Oak Hill, so they're going to work much harder than those who have played it before because they have to learn the nuances of the course. But you don't realize they they get there, maybe they putt for an hour, chip for an hour, then they'll play nine or 18 holes and they'll putt and chip for more time. So it isn't just the five hours on the round. Uh, and I think what they've done better over the years is not to burn themselves out practicing Yeah. where they practice for seven and eight hours. And then you think you're going to compete in a major championship, which is a, really a, these are major championships are mental 
gymnastic type things of concentration at the highest level on very difficult golf courses. Uh, and there's, you know, there are 20 or 30 people who think they can win the tournament. So they're really on point mentally more than the others. Uh, and it's just hard. It, it wears on you mentally. You Physically, they can do it. No problem. Well, we have to ask you, what's your favorite hole at Wingfoot? Yeah. Oh, my favorite hole, Wingfoot. My God, how about one through 36? <laughs> That's the best answer yet. Yeah. No, I mean, that. I, whenever I play, with the last time we were there, we played the, with my brothers, we played the East Course, and you just forget what a beautiful course that is. Uh, and I just, I, I can't imagine being lucky enough to be a member of Wingfoot and playing both courses, whatever. As a matter of fact, I am a member of Wingfoot. They, yes, you they are. My brothers and I and I had a membership last year, which we were, it, it blew us away actually but so both court I, I i couldn't tell you what my favorite hole is because there there are too many of them you know what i mean they're just they're all so awesome all right we'll ask the different question we ask everybody there's eight par threes take out three east you can't use three east it's taken the seven par threes left which one would you take for a large sum of money to make a par or birdie what's the one you would Probably, make? Uh, get what's, what's the you one you bet somebody that you could par yeah. And I can't do three east. Nope. No. Everybody does three east. Well, that would be the easiest of, of the group. I don't know. They're all pretty good there. I would have to probably be. Uh, a 13 east? Yeah. 13 east. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That'd be the next one. Get the money. We're going to go to 13 east when, <laughs> when we see Craig together. Because we have a lesson with your brother, Billy, the one handed sandwich lesson. Yeah, he promised oh, to teach me how to get out of a bunker. <laughs> one handed. Yeah. I'll take two hands, but any way out. Well, I'll bet you, I guarantee you won't be able to do it one-handed. You can just go to the bank on that. <laughs> Your dad, tremendous teacher, example, and so forth. One thing that you remember forever, if you live to be a 1,000, that your dad taught you about life or golf. Oh, well, 100% uh, is to have fun doing it. Just enjoy it. So whenever we played golf with him, we enjoyed it. Uh, if you gentlemen were members of Wingfoot back in the day, you got to play with them. Uh, you're playing one of the great golfers of all time, and he'd be the last one to hit off the first tee, and he'd be posing with a club down by his side, and you'd kind of start walking down the fairway tree. You know, Bill, Bob, going back here, pull me down. I'm just going to admire that shot forever. So you'd have to come <laughs> and pull his club to help him walk down the fairway with you. So <laughs> you're starting your round that way with him on a, on a fun note, and you're playing with one of the great golfers of all time. So... Uh, those are the memories of dad and how much he enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed the game, thoroughly enjoyed every shot he hit, uh, enjoyed his playing competitors and just had a good time. It was, and you imagine playing golf with him every day at Wingfoot. Anybody could play with him. That's, that's the beauty of it. You sound like Southern boys, Billy and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Bob. We're about as we're about as Southern as South Bronxville, New York. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, thank All you right. for including me on the, the podcast here, I'd enjoyed it. Well, we have to ask you, what's your favorite hole at Wingfoot? Yeah. Oh, my favorite hole, Wingfoot. My God, how about one through 36? Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show Ritter. and hit Claude the bell Harmon. icon so you get notified. Movie classics. New episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard job. and hit them off. That's 36 holes.